0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Today we take it for granted that we can arrange to meet friends at an agreed time, work a set amount of paid hours or catch a train before it leaves. But so much of the fabric of our modern lives is entirely dependent on one thing, the ability to accurately tell the time. Watchmaker Rebecca Struthers' new book, Hands of Time, charts the long history of watches and other timekeepers and how they've changed our perception of time. I spoke to her to find out more. Thank you for joining me, Rebecca. It's lovely to have you on. Um, Usually on the History Extra podcast, we're speaking mainly to historians, but you're coming at this from a slightly different perspective. So can you tell us a bit about your connection to the history of timekeeping and how you came to this subject?
1: Sure. So, yeah, I am a bit unusual in that I am actually a watchmaker, first and foremost, followed by a historian. So I trained as a restorer and I think all restorers on some level are are historians too, because if you're working on something that's several hundred years old, you need to know how it was made in order to put it back to the way it used to be. So it was a really natural progression for me. I studied jewelry and silversmithing for a couple of years, then practical watchmaking, and then ended up doing a PhD in the history of watchmaking.
0: And something that you say in your book is that the invention of mechanical timekeepers has been as significant for human culture as the printing press. Can you tell us a bit about the impact of timekeepers on human history?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to imagine our life before timekeepers, isn't it? We're, at this point, we just take them for granted so much that we never considered there was a day where we didn't really know the accurate time. And for me, I think that's the most remarkable change is just how aware and how accurately we measure our days by now in a way that we we never conceived of there being anything prior to that. I mean, you can follow it with the watches and and clocks themselves. There's kind of a bit of a, a... not quite a myth, it's partially true, but in watchmaking that the earliest watches didn't have a minute hand because they weren't accurate enough to warrant a minute hand, which is true in a way. So this is going back to the 16th and 17th century but it was also true that knowing the time to the minute wasn't as important back then as it is now. You kind of you would meet people based on the position of the sun or listening to your local turret clock chiming out the hours, which in itself probably wasn't all that accurate. So we had a much more relaxed attitude towards time than we do now. But obviously, we, there's no way we could be living the sort of life we do now, planning. international zoom conferences and, and trading and business and obviously media and streaming it relies on incredibly accurate knowledge of time so yeah the world as we know it has been kind of developed and grown around the advent and then the increasing precision of timekeeping
0: As you say, reading your book, I realised there were so many things that I just absolutely took for granted in terms of how much we rely on accurate timekeeping. And your book really is about how timekeepers have changed perceptions of time and the ways that societies have thought about time as much as the the time pieces themselves, isn't it really?
1: So my interest is watches more than clocks because... coming at this as a watchmaker as well, I had the option of training in clockmaking or watchmaking when I started out. And I've always loved watches because of this added little element that they have to them, which is that we carry them on our body throughout our daily life. And because of that, they can show us so much more than just the time. And that's why, you know, I've, Clocks are almost like bystanders of history, whereas watches are the active participant. And I really, really love that. So you can follow historical changes, political strife, religious strife through watches, through the makers, of are travelling around Europe, through the styles of them as well. So you have something, say, called Puritan watches that um, arrive with Oliver Cromwell. And watches were incredibly ornate, but obviously in Puritanism design was stripped back to the bare minimum. So the watches changed to be with that. Even though they were still very expensive, luxurious items, the Puritans still couldn't quite get rid of their watch fix. So um, they were made to be incredibly plain, and Puritan watches are usually completely smooth, almost pebble-like in their outer case, and very plain dial as well. And then, of course, as soon as it went back to um, having the monarchy again, watches go back to being these really extravagant, beautiful things. So you, you can track these political changes through the objects. And same with Huguenot makers during the persecution in France. You can watch that, you can see the makers and their work spreading out across Europe. And then the impact that they had on their local trade, a lot of them ended up in London and were an integral part of uh, London becoming the world centre of watchmaking during the 17th and 18th centuries.
0: I wonder if you could take us back to the very beginning of this story. What are some of the earliest timekeepers that have been found? Or perhaps the best contenders for earliest timekeeper. It's a theory that they're a timekeeper, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, these things don't come with an instruction manual. So we're left trying to interpret what we're looking at. The earliest contender is called the Lubombo bone. And that's a bone found in a cave in the Lubombo mountains on the border of South Africa. And it's a notched, thin, long bone about the size of your little finger. And it has a series of 29 notches alternating between 30 spaces, which, when counted and even out, work out to a lunar calendar. So although we'll never know for sure, the way it's been made was clearly very deliberate. You can see it's been polished with years of use of handling. Someone's been holding this and playing with it and been passed through probably through generations. So whatever it was, it was clearly a very important thing. Um, and that's yeah so that's 40,000 just over 40,000 years old and the first evidence that we have of humans keeping time
0: you'll know real when you get
1: it it'll say ebay
0: authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it maybe it's a head-turning handbag a watch that says it all jewelry that makes you look like a gem sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. And I was really interested to read in your book about timekeepers before mechanics, essentially. I'm thinking here of things like sundials, water clocks, candle clocks and sand clocks. Could you tell
1: us about some of them and how they work? So sundials were the first and they are, as we think of sundials today, they use the position of the sun in the sky during the day to chart out um, the time on a horizontal scale, a bit like a protractor, to define the hour of the daytime. You also get lunar dials as well, which do exactly the same thing with moonlight. And yeah, back then, very much um, just to tell the time. Now they can be incredibly complex, but that was the first kind of attempts to divide the day into smaller parcels of time. Yeah, I mean, this is a the theme with a lot of these early timekeepers, they're all very organic, so relying on the natural materials and natural events around us. He had clepsydra, which means a water thief. Those are our early water clocks. And the simplest ones are literally just water draining through a hole in a bowl. And it's the duration that it's measuring of how long it takes that water to empty will give you a determined amount of time. And the really incredible thing I find about, particularly about clepsydra, is they appear all around the world at very similar times. So you've got them in North Africa, in Europe, in China. It could be very basic or could be more complex. You had early sort of water alarm clocks and things like this appearing. And then going into uh, sunglasses, so that's quite a bit later now, with the sundials and clepsydra, we're talking, Two and a half, three and a half thousand years ago. Sandglasses are much more recent. So that's in the last sort of thousand, 1, fifteen hundred years. They're more timers. So again, breaking up the day into allotted quantities of time, but not keeping time over duration. You need this constant human interaction with them, like refilling the clepsydra. You've got to flip your hourglass. But they were really useful on ships was the primary target for those. So you'd see um, them appearing in ships' inventories. Christopher Columbus had one. And they, again, were used for travelling because, I mean, with candle clocks in use at the time, you can imagine not very good on a wooden ship out at sea. You don't particularly want an open flame. Also have a tendency of blowing out. Then you've got clepside, you're going to be sloshing around all over the place. Again, not particularly useful. Sundials, you need a good sky. You need a good clear sky for that, which, again, out at sea, travelling the world, when you're lucky, if you're in the right place. Whereas sunglasses provided the perfect solution to all of those things, and they were used for a very long time, actually, up until the first uh, mechanical timekeepers. So they had quite a long run of use. And yeah, the last one I saw was those candle clocks. Alfred the Great famously is reported to have divided his day using sets of eight-hour candle clocks, and he'd use them to kind of yeah divide his day into. Eight hours of uh, sleeping, eight hours of working and eight hours of study.
0: So a lot of these, as you say, were not necessarily the most practical, but there were some forms of them developed that were, were meant to be visual spectacles, really, as much as timekeepers. Can you tell us about some of perhaps the most
1: spectacular timekeepers? Yeah, in this day and age in particular, sort of these uh, big public spectacle clocks were, were some of the, the big ones. He had Ishmael al-Jazari, who was um, a brilliant polymath and inventor of the Islamic Golden Age, who invented a clepsydra that was actually built into a life-size Asian elephant, which would have been an incredible thing unfortunately it's not survived but there is a reproduction in Dubai now that's fully functioning and this uh, there's a bowl inside the belly of the elephant that slowly sinks and pulls a trigger above it there's a rider on the elephant who starts to wave his arm and there's dragons on top and a phoenix and bell sound and it was very much kind of the, the clock as a spectacle and a work of art yeah, these incredible things and clocks in public spaces as well. So, there's a wonderful one in Toledo that was a lunar clock uh, that had a device inside it that could actually allow for the water to refill itself. So, if you took water out or it started to evaporate, it would auto correct basically. And this, we're talking again over a thousand years ago, these things were being made. And especially Al-Jazari is now called the father of robotics for the work that he did in in inventing humanoid automata. So not just clocks, he he made humanoid waitresses that could serve drinks at parties, bands that could sail around the lake on a little boat playing music all out of robotic devices over a thousand years ago. Sounds amazing. So when did we see the emergence of what
0: we would recognise today as a clock face? Something circular with hands and numbers that told the time in the way we would recognise it today?
1: Later than clocks themselves. So the first fully mechanical clocks appear in the 14th century. The oldest possible clock is around 1186. So there's one in Salisbury and there's another one in Italy. It's quite probable that the first clocks came out of Northern Italy around that time, but many of these things don't survive and records don't always survive. So we'll never really know, but it's around that sort of time. And the name uh, clock actually derives from the Latin for bell. So it was just a bell. You didn't have a dial. And dials are things that came in Later. So initially, it was just to mark out prayer times, particularly um, important for the Catholic Church growing at that point. In Europe, we didn't have quite the same weather that they had in North Africa and the Middle East. So relying on things like sundials, no matter how accurate they could be, was not really an option for us. So so most of the timekeepers that we've discussed so far, as you say, they've been slightly unwieldy
0: or they've been public spectacles. When did timepieces become accessible to ordinary
1: people and what impact would that have had on ordinary lives? So the very first thing, this is a subject that got me into research the history of watches in a big way and this came through a watch that I found while I was working at an auction house that turned out to be a kind of early forgery from the second half of the 18th century that marked the advent of mass production non-standardized mass production in watches. And it's huge. It's really exciting. There's nothing written about them. They're terrible things, really. They're not great quality. They're not particularly well made. They, I mean, they keep the time to an extent, but they weren't exactly state-of-the-art timekeepers. But these watches, they were called Dutch forgeries because they're made in an aesthetically Dutch style, signed with London makers' names because London was the, the centre of watchmaking like Switzerland is now, or you get German-made cars or Japanese cameras. You wanted, everyone wanted a London watch because it was the Invoke thing. But they were also believed to be made on the Swiss-French border. So I found this out very early on. And I was like, oh, this makes no sense to me whatsoever. I need to get to the bottom of this. And I chased these watches back through sort of 250 years of history, looking through archives, studying physical surviving examples at the British Museum which again is another thing that's really important being able to research the history of it being a watchmaker is that I've got the full 360 view of the object I can take it apart and study it look for hidden marks hidden signatures any clues that both within the watch as well as within the archives that surround those watches and yeah I found long story short it was Dutch merchants commissioning them from Swiss French watchmakers with Dutch, their national style, but using London because of the cachet of the city. And it took the watch from something that could be made in top London workshops in a thousand, two thousand, few thousand watches a year, up to over 40,000 watches a year. So although it wasn't standardised, it wasn't mass manufacturing as we'd understand it today, it was a huge change in the way watches were being produced. And over the next hundred years, you get these kind of that sort of early forgeries that uh, are halving a quarter of the price of the London-made examples to the dollar watch, which was the, the perfection of full mass production. So that was in the US 100 years later. They could produce a watch for a dollar, which was the average day's wage for a worker at the time. And, um, yeah, they appear everywhere and that, that's what you really see over that century and how much time tra- interchanges that all classes of people in life are starting to find access to watches. And it starts quite slowly you get um, kind of accounts from factories where someone's got a watch and um, the watch ends up being confiscated by the factory master because he's been telling the other workers the time of day and the factory master has been putting the clock kind of behind in the evening or ahead in the morning or cutting off breaks. But obviously that no longer works if your staff know the time of day for themselves. Right the way through to, yeah, by the time we get to the First World War and that's where wristwatches really start to come in. At the end of the First World War, almost every guy had a wristwatch. So again, you go from them being this um, really exclusive status symbol worth huge amounts of money. So only the wealthiest people in society could afford them to virtually everyone owns a wristwatch. I was so interested
0: to read about how, if you think of today, um, a, a wristwatch seems like the ultimate kind of luxury item for a man, thinking of James Bond or Rolex. But that when wristwatches first emerged, they weren't seen as something masculine. In fact, they were seen as very much not masculine. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so the first possible description we have of a wristwatch was actually in the wardrobe of Elizabeth I. And it's an incredible sounding thing. It's described as a clock worn on the arm in a gold bangle covered in rubies, emeralds and diamonds. Okay. Unfortunately, so few of these things have survived. We just have this description. We don't have the actual piece. But it, yeah, it fits with the sort of way that watches were being worn at the time but very much a female accessory and by the time you start to see wristwatches becoming more popular in the late 18th and early 19th centuries they're almost exclusively worn by women and that's it they're a very feminine piece of jewelry they weren't considered as a proper watch real men wore pocket watches that was a manly thing to do yeah, Levi Strauss in the uh, 101 jeans, the little pocket that you've actually got, most people still have in their jeans, and the mini pocket in your front pocket was designed for pocket watches. So even cowboys wore pocket watches. And it wasn't until firstly the Boer War and then the First World War that it was realised just how much more convenient having the time on your wrist was as opposed to looking in your pocket while you're being shot at. But it really caught on amongst men too. But it it took time. It wasn't an instant thing, but by the time it really did catch on, that was it. And now we can't imagine a day when James Bond wouldn't have been considered masculine for wearing a wristwatch. (laughs) Wow, I think that fact about the jean pocket
0: is going to be the fact of the year on this podcast. Uh, That has never, ever occurred to me before. So I wanted to ask you about some of your own personal favourite watches. You've delved into the great and the good of the history of watchmaking. What do you think are just some of the most notable examples?
1: See... I really struggle with this question because I have so many of them that it changes from day to day as to which ones are my favourite. Anything by a guy called Abraham Louis Breguet, who's one of my favourite watchmakers, as much for who he was as a person and the time he worked in history as he is his innovations. So to this day, he's the watchmaker who has the most inventions still in use in watches. And this guy was working at the end of the 18th century, so during the French Revolution in Paris. And he went from making watches for French royalty and being the official watchmaker at Versailles to fleeing the country during the Revolution, uh, spending time in Switzerland, making a moved for London. He worked in London for a short while, ended up making watches for George III and Queen Charlotte, and then ended up being invited back and moving back to Paris by the French revolutionary regime, who Actually that they gave him back his workshops. when he ran away, obviously he was considered a traitor to, to the regime and they confiscated his workshops, everything was trashed. and when he went back, he said the only way he'd start making watches again for them was if they gave him back his workshops and refitted it at the cost of the state and they did which is almost unheard of. And it's even said he ended up making watches for Napoleon, timepieces for Napoleon too. It's said that Napoleon would dress up in disguise and visit his workshops while he was also making watches for the Duke of Wellington. And it's just absolutely phenomenal that this point in history, though, was chaos and disruption on a level we can't imagine in contemporary Europe that a man was so brilliant in the middle of it all that he was able to work for all sides and keep his head. It's just amazing. I wish I could have met him. He must have been such an incredible person.
0: One of the the watches that you look at in the book is is a watch that's called Watch 1505 or the Pomander Watch. Can you tell us a bit about it and its creation because it's a really interesting
1: story? So this is what might be the first ever watch, with the watch being a fully mechanical portable timekeeper that can be worn on the body. And it was made in the year 1505 by a watchmaker called Peter Henlein. He actually trained as a locksmith. And you find a lot of this with the early watches that there's so many overlaps between the techniques, the materials that we use between locksmithing and watchmaking in the 16th century that you get a lot of locksmiths moving into watchmaking. And Peter Henline was an interesting character. He actually developed this first watch, I'll say in inverted commas. There may have been earlier ones, but they've not been on Earth, so we'll never know for sure. So he created this first watch in a monastery in Nuremberg where he was actually on the run from the law as he was wanted in involvement with a a murder quite recently. So he um, sought sanctuary there for a while and it just so happened that this monastery was kind of a hub for all the great minds in science and technology and the arts at the time. So it created a perfect environment for him to innovate. So he's already... A quite a brilliant if not slightly sinister mind and yeah, it, he had this space to just work on inventing new things so he invented this early pomanda watch which is like a, a it's spherical it's like a ball and it was inspired by the, the pomandas of uh, incense that you'd see kind of swinging in a church and these early watches t- generally fall into that style or we call them tambour case watches which look more like a little drum but again these were worn kind of quite visually obvious places of the body around your neck or hanging from the waistband.
0: You said at the beginning of our conversation that all restorers are in part historians. Could you tell us a bit more about what it's like to work on antique and historic watches? It must surely be quite nerve-wracking taking these things apart. You've got to know that you can put them back together again.
1: You can't let that get to you. <laughs> you you have to learn quite early on that it's just another watch and that it's the minute you let yourself start Thinking about what you're doing, that the gremlins creep in and something's going to happen. So, for me, it doesn't matter whether it's a family heirloom or just something they recently bought at auction. It doesn't matter whether it's worth twenty pounds or two hundred thousand pounds. is irrelevant. It's just a watch that needs restoring. So, yeah, I love it. It's my favorite part of what we do. We make watches as well, but the restoration is just. It's special, I suppose, because you're handling this object that's been around sometimes hundreds of years before you have. And it, if looked after, it can be around hundreds of years after I'm long gone. And you form a little part of the history and the life of this object that has so much more than just this moment with you. And especially when you can see the, the marks of other repairers who've worked on it and decades gone by centuries gone by and you know that now you're just another little little hidden signature in this watch uh, that you're another step in its journey it's like and then send it on its way again it's a lovely thing to do
0: that was rebecca struthers her book hands of time a watchmaker's history of time is out now published by hodder and Stoughton. thanks for listening to the history extra podcast this podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.